0: The book features authors such as Leslie Marvin Soko, James Baldwin, Lydia Millett, Samuel Delaney, David Foster Wallace, Star Wars, not the movie, but SDI, and everyone's favorite, Ayn Rand. Its title is Infrastructures of the Apocalypse, American Literature, and the Nuclear Complex. And I'm here talking to Jessica Hurley. Hello.
1: Hi, Christine. Nice to see you. So... Before
0: we get started, to let everybody get to know you, I thought we might run through, could you you give me a sense of your intellectual biography?
1: So this project started with my dissertation um, at Penn, where I was reading about um, kind of post-1945 apocalypticism and getting kind of weirded out and a bit frustrated that all of the kind of 90s into early 2000s apocalypse Cultural theories seem to be treating the post-1945 period as this kind of post-apocalyptic, post-political sense of anime where somehow all of the traumas of World War II had put all of culture, broadly defined, into a weird kind of post-apocalyptic space where all of history had already happened and now we're living in this kind of post-historical era of malaise with no real kind of struggles or stakes to it. But also all of these books were only reading and talking about basically Thomas Pynchon and Don DeLillo, uh, sometimes Richard Powers as well. Um, So where this project really started was that sense of like, I I just really don't think that's true for everyone um, because we're actually looking at a time of both – severely threatened futures for lots of people and a time of like intense political struggle um, often also conducted in a kind of eschatological now or never um, sense of temporality so this project really began trying to figure out right what um, people of color queer people women indigenous people would doing writing apocalypse fiction in this period, right? If it wasn't for those reasons, what was it for? What's it doing for them? All
0: right. Well that I guess that lets me ask my the first question I had, which is, correct me if I'm wrong in this reading, but as I was reading the book, I, I kind of got the continued sense of it, its narrative is white dudes finally experience something everyone else has experienced their entire existence. And it turns out that really sucks. Um, and and it, put me in the mind of, um, James Franco in the Ballad of Buster Scruggs where he's about to get hanged for the second time. And he looks at the guy and he says, first time, is is that a fair reading? (laughs) Um,
1: yes, to a certain extent. Um, yeah, I think it definitely started off from that place. Um, trying to challenge, um, that, you know, the kind of who's we white man, um, meme that would also go alongside that one, I think. Um, And I think that meme is especially definitely spot on for the first chapter, um, where I'm talking specifically about how whiteness experienced the advent of the atomic age with a kind of spit take of horror, that white people might be put in the same position of kind of undifferentiated vulnerability, that they'd long relegated the the rest of the world to, right. Um, And in terms of my approach, I am using this comparative method to try and move beyond what Lisa Yonayama has called nuclear universalism, um, which assumes a kind of universal threat. And then includes the fact that nuclear threats are highly differentiated um, along lines of race, class, indigeneity, disability, gender, sexuality. Um, But slash and um, within the chapters, I have tried to get deep enough into each different history and literary and critical framework, that whiteness isn't always the touchstone for the argument. Um, So in the chapter about civil defense and James Baldwin and Samuel Delaney, for instance, my readings of those novels aren't just there as a kind of gotcha for whiteness um, to show how African American life has always been apocalyptic. Um, But what I'm trying to get at there is how both authors are also of talking to and intervening in a long tradition of black apocalypticism as a form um, and how they're trying to get it to do something else that they see as particularly relevant in this kind of nuclear post-civil rights moment.
0: Well, I want to lead up to the Delaney because it's some of my favorite readings in the book come from there. Uh, so now I want to take a step back again. So you said, all right, first there was Little Pynchon, maybe a little bit of powers. And then that that leaves out a lot so what what came first like obviously you're like, okay, don't need to write about them but instead what what then came first when you noticed this very strange kind of exclusion of everyone what came first in saying here's something that addresses it
1: I mean at this point, I feel like it's purely chance you know you love to think that you have written the best of all possible books and your all of your selection process was incredibly um well thought through, but really it was just the category of apocalypse fiction by people who were straight white men. Um, I think I I was already familiar with um, Angels in America. I had just read Atlas Shrugged because it was the time of the tea party. And I thought, oh, you have to know your enemy. Um, So I read it and then I felt like I had to do something with it because I had just... (laughs) read it, and it was so long and so awful that I then entered into a sunk cost fallacy that would take up the next five years of my life, which I guess I'm glad I did, but I don't think I would probably choose again to spend so long writing about a text that I really deeply dislike. Um, Tzitzi Jaji recommended both the Baldwin and the Delaney to me. Um, Infinite Jest I already knew, and then Silco, I think, I recall correctly, didn't come along until later. Originally, that fourth chapter was going to be about the Left Behind series um, and Infinite Jest and globalization. So I did also read all 12 novels in the Left Behind series, which never made it into the book. I think there's maybe one line (laughs) about them, but at least I didn't fall into the sunk cost fallacy the second time. Um, And weirdly, it was that kind of fortuitous slash random concatenation of books that took me to thinking about nuclear infrastructures at all. Um, When I began this project, it was strictly an apocalypse project. I wasn't thinking at all about nuclear things. But as I worked through the chapters, all of them had this kind of weird, semi-hidden nuclear stuff in them. And for none of them was it this kind of imminent threat of global universal nuclear war. That's going to wipe us all out at once. We are all the same under the nuclear umbrella kind of thing. All of them were thinking about how nuclearization had kind of transformed the U S on these different levels from the bureaucracy to the urban landscape, to how we think about time and sexuality and bodies. And then the very kind of material, like where are the nuclear waste dumps put um, stuff. So Actually, everything to do with the nuclear in the book came from reading these texts and how they were thinking about um, the kind of weird, everyday, mundane ways that life has been transformed um, kind of under the shadow of this nuclear, political, environmental economy.
0: OK, well, I think that leads me to um, uh, we can call this section of the interview. Jessica explains things to me um, I'm not too proud to say that there, there are moments that I, I'm not sure I understood. So hopefully there's there's like three or four that maybe um, as you explain them, they'll let me add some questions or delete some questions from my list. And the first one, I think, gets right to what you were talking about. It's, it's on page three. Uh, and, and you write that, um, as the study will show, these writers use fiction to repurpose the apocalyptic implotments, you know, that's kind of where you started, of the nuclear age for liberatory purposes, deploying the futureless horizon imposed on them by nuclear infrastructures to interrupt the normative time of social reproduction that reproduces the future in the image of the present. Um, like I say, I, I'm i not 100% sure I understand that, so could you walk me through that, Um know in, and in, maybe in, in simpler terms
1: <laughs> i 100 can i think uh, and i will credit that line to a writing exercise which i really recommend when people are trying to figure out what their books are about which is opening a blank document and you have to write 10 sentences beginning with the phrase in this case apocalypse is and i think this was number seven um So, yeah, um, in writing a book about apocalypse, I think one of the things that was most surprising to me was that so most of the time when you're talking about apocalypse, you're almost always actually talking about the future, um, not about there being no future. You're imagining a specific future that's going to come to pass. And then this future does an enormous amount of work in determining what seems possible or necessary or desirable in the present. Um, so think about basically any, like, an asteroid is coming to hit New York, we must do X thing. Um, or a kind of post-apocalyptic, ah, an asteroid has tragically wiped out New York, now I can live my dreams of being a patriarch with a harem of people who may be related to me. Um, that's Farnum's Freehold by Robert Heinlein, if you're wondering. Um, So, and this becomes really apparent in the nuclear context where imagining apocalypse is basically like the main way that enormous political, military, economic, social and environmental decisions get made. Um, So in the 50s, for instance, city and state officials are literally conducting multi-day like live action role-playing games of nuclear apocalypse and then using that imagined future to reshape major cities and budgets. Um, And of course, the futures imagined by people in power tend to maintain the structures of power that benefit them. Um, So this is what I mean by the normative time of social reproduction, um, that the future is imagined to be much the same as the present, and then decisions in the present are made to actualize that not particularly different future. Um, And I think we're seeing it right now with climate change, um, where the extent of difference in the future is seen by the US governing elite as like electric cars rather than a radically different political economy that's not based on ecocide. Um, So this means that the kind of radical futurelessness that I'm seeing in the authors in the book, where apocalypse isn't an imagined future, but rather the lack of any future at all, um, disrupts the power that the imagined future has over the present, and then opens up the present to other possibilities.
0: Okay, well then, you, you've set me up for my next uh, question, um, which is the, that term futurelessness. Um, so, you, when you're kind of situating your kind of theoretical intervention, which you've already just spelled out a bit, in ter- especially in terms of time and political economy, uh, you write how how implantments without futurity can alter our lived experience of the world, uh, and that some of these, um, and previous to that, you so you talk about them being oriented towards futurelessness. So Uh, And obviously, you know, even someone like me, I don't read a lot in queer theory, but I know the kind of no future kind of um, argument. Um, And then there's also kind of like, um, we can also think of no future as kind of like a symptom of depression. Um, And uh, how does that like, but that's not what you're talking about. So how does that work inside these like implotments without futurity and futurelessness? Is it more of like, the, the future looks much like now just with the electric cars or is there something a little more that um i need a little more instruction on
1: yeah i mean the depression thing is interesting i think like a really relevant point because you know what edelman has going for him right with the no future thing is that kind of punk euphoria of the kind of yeah no future fuck everything um but that's really not the kind of affect around the futurelessness that I'm talking about. And I think part of the reason that environmental and social theory has a hard time taking futurelessness seriously, is that it feels really bad. Um, like Everyone hates it, including, or maybe especially people with whom I might agree much of the time. Um, Because apocalypse is generally considered a cop out, right? Like giving up hope, which is also generally considered like completely unacceptable. We're constantly being told to stay hopeful and losing hope is like a personal and political failing. But like sometimes situations are genuinely hopeless. Like sometimes your own and your community's future horizon is genuinely foreclosed. So then the question isn't, or at least it shouldn't be in my view, How do I regain hope? It's how do we keep the struggle going in these moments of depression or futurelessness? Or more actively, like how might those moments of depression or futurelessness teach us a different way of being in or thinking about the world? Um, So the idea that there's something valuable and politically radical in that feeling rather than that feeling being a kind of automatic political failure is what I'm really Pushing for here, but I'm also very aware that the feeling itself may well not feel good. Okay,
0: um, a couple more. Um, in reading, kind of in using, you use infrastructure a lot in, in the in the book, and at some points I kind of got that vibe watching U.S. politics from afar, where there was kind of an ongoing joke of like everything is infrastructure. Uh, and then at one point, uh, and this might just be a yes or no question, you talk about second order infrastructures, um, colon, the new bureaucracies, cities and bodies that have emerged within a nation structured around nuclear weapons. And and so I I, I remember writing in the margins, I said, are second order infrastructures different than discourses? Or are they are those synonyms?
1: Yes, I love this question. Um, and it actually really clarifies something for me because I think that like through this lens, we can think about infrastructures as basically like discourses materialized through the landscape. Um, So in that specific line, I'm actually just using second order to mean not directly nuclear, like a city versus a nuclear waste disposal site. Um, But the question reminds me of a line that I found one day on the Notes app on my phone that I don't remember writing, but it just says in all caps, infrastructure is where the speculative imagination meets structural violence i was like okay (laughs) Uh, which i guess is to say a question at the heart of this book is how infrastructure which is not normally considered like a literary or a discursive phenomenon is connected to narrative form Um, and in the book i describe a kind of double movement between the two where cultural discourses that are operating within the apocalyptic mode come to shape the kinds of infrastructures that get built and those infrastructures then um, come to shape um, the—I'm sorry, the—I'm going to start that again. The discourses in the apocalyptic mode come to shape the kinds of infrastructures that get built, and then those infrastructures come to shape an apocalyptic genre of experience by foreclosing people's actual futures. Um, But at the macro level, I—yeah. That's (laughs) Um,
0: the Delaney chapter, basically. (laughs) Yes. Um,
1: Basically, all of this just comes from reading Dahlgren like four times. But at the macro level, I think you could definitely describe all infrastructure as solidified discourse um, in a way that opens up potentially a lot of interesting questions for people with disciplinary expertise in discourse analysis. All
0: right. All right. So I feel like I I don't feel as dumb now as I did when I started asking those questions. That's good. I'll have to reread your book again. Um, So now thinking big picture about the book, and one of the things I really liked about it is that you kind of dismiss um, endings in a way, which I, I thought was, was great. And so But I, my question then becomes, for your money, what is the most important part of a book when it comes to analyzing it? And then I will give you my follow-up immediately. How much, and I, I use this word advisedly, how much damage does the fixation on the ending as a kind of summation to, to a book's mm. argument, how much damage does that do to our understandings of literature?
1: Yeah, so all of this goes back to Frank Commode, right <laughs> his very brilliant and influential analysis of how Christian apocalyptic typology like relates to and has shaped the form of the novel. Um, so for Commode, both of these forms are about like what makes time meaningful. And in both forms, the thing that brings meaning to time is the consonance that's his word, um, between the beginning and the end. Um, so this is Chekhov's gun, right, like the gun on the wall, the first act has to go off in the third act. And that's how you know, time has this kind of meaningful arc. Um, the prophecy at the beginning of the Bible has to be fulfilled in the second coming. And the ending of the novel is what charges the rest of the novel with meaningfulness. Um, So you end up with this kind of widely shared cultural sense that the meaning of a process or an event derives from how it all works out. Um, And we really see this in how political action is imagined. I think Um, like a process or an attempt to change things is judged on whether it like quote unquote worked. And very little credit is given to the idea that the process or the attempt is as important or meaningful as the outcome. Um, And when it comes to what this obsession with the ending as a kind of guarantor of meaning does to our understanding of literature, um, I will always go back to Eric Auerbach on this. Um, Figura is this amazing essay about how figuration itself as a meaning-making process operates in relation to an apocalyptic horizon. Um, Because as with Commode, it's the fulfillment of all figures in the second coming that kind of secures their meaning. But what Auerbach is interested in that I find really fascinating is restoring that sense of movement and play and flexibility to figures in the present, because actually the second coming hasn't yet happened, so all meaning is kind of unsecured. Um, So against that kind of critical tendency to fix everything in the novel into place by reading its meaning in relation to the ending, Auerbach gives us a way to think about figuration as something that's always in motion. Um, and this perhaps is what connects it to something like a nuclear infrastructural reading method um, that we tend to think about infrastructure as a thing, just like reading a novel as something whose meaning is fixed by its ending. Also makes it a thing, you know, a self enclosed object. But as Lauren Belant wrote, infrastructure is not a thing. It's a set of relations in motion. Um, and futurelessness is something that's imposed by nuclear infrastructures, gets rid of that imagined ending that provides meaning to the whole and puts us back into that kind of relational movement and flexible figuration, um, which is what I'm calling the transfigurative power of futurelessness. And politically, I think that's really important, especially for those of us inhabiting overdetermined subject positions who tend to get trapped into those fixed meanings um, assigned to them by broader cultural processes. Um, Literarily, my hope is that we can broaden our understanding of where meaning comes from. Um, And this is where I find Michelle Wright's work on quantum Baldwin, so helpful and interesting in the physics of blackness, because she's arguing there that blackness should not be understood, um, or not only understood as a thing, but also as a temporal and spatial relation. And what this gives us is a way to make more nuanced analyses, not only of Literature by being able to think of them as something that's kind of unfolding in multiple directions through time rather, rather than as an object where once you know what happens at the end, that's your takeaway. Um, but also of literary figures, like who should get, in her argument, to be multidimensional and contradictory, um, which is especially true of Baldwin because he's been written into such a kind of overdetermined decline narrative, right? Where everyone's like, ah, oh, yes, early Baldwin. Full of hope, great, late Baldwin. Pretty hopeless about America's chances of redemption. Terrible, we hate it. Um, so I really love Wright's kind of insistence that um, Baldwin in particular should get to be complex and multidimensional and unfixed in his meanings in time. All right, so
0: then it, it kind of gets me to a uh, kind of get that, that approach or that method. Um, so there's endings, there's centers, there's cruxes, there's hubs. And these terms kind of pop up throughout. So w- when you approach everything in, in this book, like, where did you go? Uh, does It It seems to me, I mean, as, as somebody who kind of stops paying attention a lot of the time when it's time to wrap up the narrative because you kind of know where it's going to go, um, it, it seems quite liberating to just be able to say,
1: no, anywhere.
0: <laughs> Is
1: that how you approach things? Yeah, well, I was probably the right person to come to this project because I have always been an absolute um, plot-centered, what's going to happen at the end reader. Um, like, I'm a fast reader. I'm a pretty obsessive reader. I am basically everything that Peter Brooks is talking about in reading for the plot. Um, I've lived my entire life reading for the ending um, and waiting for it to confer meaning on the whole. So this was revelatory um, for me to, I think there's two things that led me to it. One is that once you start looking for how writers are kind of building futures into the present and thinking about time working backwards in that way, it disrupts that kind of headlong Drive to the ending, weirdly, because you end up with more of a kind of temporal loop. Um, two was just spending so much time with these incredibly long books. I, I think the shortest novel in here is like 400 pages, and at least two of them are over a thousand. Angels in America, if you watch it, is over eight hours long. That um, there's a durational property them, where you can really kind of get lost in the middle and the ending radically diminishes in importance um, simply because of scale. You're just in a different kind of reading process. Um, And then finally was the way that um, many of these texts were thinking really fascinatingly about their own endings. Um, So both Tell Me How Long the Train's Been Gone and Dahlgren are circular novels. They write themselves back around to the beginning at the end. Um, Almanac of the Dead has this incredible kind of hollowed out temporality where the novel takes place over the course of a year, but in the middle you get 500 years of North American indigenous history. Um, Angels in America is constantly jumping back and forth in time and also making you as an audience member very aware of your kind of embodied movement through time um, while you sit in the theater for four hours watching one of the plays um, take place i think there's a real there's a pedagogy to these novels that is actually instructing us on how to have a different experience of time and that's something that i've really tried to kind of reckon with narratologically in these accounts is really just trying to describe what these books are doing and how their kind of complication of the ending gives us a different understanding of what it means to to live in time to inhabit time
0: you just said the the books have a pedagogy have you had success or struggle in kind of in trying to bring this into your own teaching Uh, how resistant are students to such an approach If if you've tried it
1: well, I've complicated my own um, career and time management issues by writing a book about texts that you literally can't teach because they're too long. <laughs> <In> <laughs> <guess> <laughs> perhaps I know people who spent an entire semester reading Infinite Jest with their students. I have yet to put that in action, um, but yeah, no one's ever really going to read the you know eight hundred page novel. Um, <laughs> Over the course of the semester, um, what I have found students to be interested in thinking about is, um, you know, I teach sci-fi and speculative fiction, mostly as well as the environmental humanities. And I think students really get into that question of um, what can literature do to kind of alter our phenomenological experience of the world? Like, what does it mean to think about fiction as something that is kind of acting on you and how you experience yourself in time and in relation to meaning Uh, because it's a very active way of thinking about literature. And I think students find that exciting um, compared to a, like we have pinned this poem to the page, like a butterfly. And now we're going to take it apart and see how it works. Um, I think they, they like the kind of two-way process where it's like, you know, like a pineapple has enzymes in it that are digesting you as you're digesting it. that literature is acting on you at the same time as you are trying to analyze it and pin it down.
0: Pineapple estate, fruit of Queensland. I'm now afraid. Okay. Wow. Um,
1: it's now, coming for you.
0: So to, to switch, um, to switch gears a bit. Um, one of the questions I had uh, in this, and it might be, it's the question I wrote kind of before you explained to me the futurelessness, uh, so that I felt a little more equipped, but the idea is, is historical consciousness like a consolation prize for a world without a future? Uh, Cause you, you, talk a lot about kind of like there's a new form of historical consciousness. You just talked about kind of a new form of a literary consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, and if there's no future, um, at least you know, knowing, uh, you know, coming to a different sort of consciousness about the past, that, that's a good deal, I guess.
1: Yeah. I mean, to a certain extent it is a consolation prize. Um, or, at the very least um a very kind of different model of apocalypse from the colonial one that has shaped a lot of Western thought and that I think we normally are referring to um when we talk about apocalypse um like all of the authors that I'm working with, I think are responding really explicit to the kind of traditional apocalypse model of the new heaven and the new earth, right where like. In the apocalypse, everything that you don't like and everything that you've done wrong is going to be wiped away. And you get to start all over again from scratch. Um, And this has been the colonial impulse since Columbus, who rocked up in the Americas and defined it as like the place where Europe would go to wipe the slate clean, build its new earth. Um, And in these imaginings, apocalypse is the opposite of historical consciousness, right? It's the wiping out of uncomfortable and painful histories. and my discomfort with becoming as a critical concept is how easily it maps on to this desire to obliterate the past in the name of the redemptive future. Um, so I kind of get into that towards the end of the book when I'm trying to think more broadly about the theoretical implications of this. Um, so one key feature of all of the texts that I'm looking at is that their form of apocalypse from below doesn't just treat futurelessness differently from traditional apocalypse narratives. It also has a really different relationship to the past um, that these authors are really not looking to like wipe out history to access a better future. Um, The historical consciousness is a real commitment here. um, Even as they're experimenting with futurelessness as a way of opening up different presents to which that past might lead and in which it might be meaningful.
0: Right. Because in, in your discussion of Baldwin and Delaney, uh, you write that in their aesthetic reconceptualizations of nuclear infrastructural thought, Baldwin and Delaney offer an alternative temporality centered on something like resonance, a narrative structure mm. that registers the presence of the past and the present without making history the determining feature of the now. Um, and the, the question I kind of have is like, well, if it's not here, we kind of can get leaked, you know, act like a lawyer. Is it the... Determining feature or is it the determining feature? Which one carries Mm. more weight the as like a definite article or the determining part?
1: Um, Mm. Well, I can only say that when I read this out loud in my mind, I emphasize determining Without making it the determining feature Okay, up the now All
0: right I, I do want to get, cause I think the Delaney chapter is really just so much fun, but I have other stuff I want to get to kind of go chronologically through the book. Um, <laughs> um but I, I keep turning to that one because I, I just feel like it's so relentlessly materialist in, in what you do and mm-hmm. that, um, uh, and I feel like that just doesn't show up enough in a lot of, uh, film and literature, uh, analyses. Um, so maybe, well, let, let's just skip to it. Um, my, my, my dissertation long ago was about suburbanization and transportation. And so you just have the lovely um, uh, line, Apocalypse gets the suburb built, but anti-Blackness determines who will live there. Um, and here we can see that uh, infrastructure isn't just a thing, that mm-hmm. um, it, it determines social relations, you know, highways cutting through um, formerly you know, um, you know, formerly Black neighborhoods, um, creating you know physical boundaries that make you know it impossible for people to interact with each other creating food deserts and stuff like that um, so um, so living in the suburbs on the one hand and we see a lot of this in the earlier uh, research it creates like the lonely crowd organization man you know s- sense and you get at this idea of yeah it sucks but at least the Soviets won't irradiate me mm-hmm. uh, uh, and um, uh, and on the flip side you um, for white suburbanites, is this unspoken and uh, probably hope that the Soviets yes. will nuke black people, right? Um, and that it creates like this exog, exogu, an, an event from the outside um, <laughs> um, that solves U.S. racial inequalities. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, in this sense, what we get is actually um, the U.S. and the Soviet Union are working together to to solve uh, the U.S.'s racial inequality problems um, by please kill all the black people in the city for us um,
1: yes, and we will ignore the fact or at least disavow the fact that having literally built our cities to make that happen is also an action that seeks to bring it about it would be entirely external
0: Do you, I mean I, mean, I have, like you I don't you don't really make that claim kind of explicitly but I feel like that's kind of one of the strong undercurrents of is it like that it's kind of like, how, how far can we push? And, and this is kind of the cold war. It's like, how far can we push to maybe, maybe get a deal? Um, do you, do you feel like that's kind of, cause that's what I felt reading it. It's like, you, you won't come up and say it. Um, that's like, you know, almost like let's get a nuclear war going. Let's see what it's like. Um, but I really got the feeling. It's like, that is, I was ready to believe it a hundred percent just through all <laughs> the repetition of you pointing out I'm like, yeah, it seems like that what was, what was going on.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's also one of those things where you can't really pin it down because obviously no one, at least in any declassified <laughs> documents, has written this out explicitly. And sometimes you're looking at kind of just broader demographic shifts, right? Like probably all of the people who lived on the ground zero of the Philadelphia um like live action role play where the Soviets going to drop bombs exercise didn't get together. And we're like, Hey guys, did you see we're going to be bombed in this exercise? We should all move out to Levittown, which has restrictive covenants. Um, so there is a question, you know, as a, as an analyst and a writer, how do you assign kind of deliberateness and agency um, to those larger social movements? But there's also the difference between a, the first wave of social imaginaries that are built around, you know, what would it be like if the U.S. got bombed and the later technological realities. So after 1954, you've got thermonuclear weapons. And it actually makes, in practice, a lot of these things kind of irrelevant. Um, you know, if someone bombs Philadelphia with a thermonuclear weapon, the suburban housewives out in Levittown are not going to be, you know, in their daydresses receiving refugees from the city, like the whole area is just going to be completely wiped out. Um, so there's also that tension between people are still working on these older assumptions, um, well into the 60s, and these imaginaries of, you know, well, the city goes, but the suburbs get to flourish. Uh, But you can't actually say materially that that's what would have happened in a nuclear bombing, because the bombs just get bigger and more plentiful. And actually, we just all would have died. Um, But that does not wipe out the effectiveness of that kind of imaginary um, in reshaping the cities and the suburbs.
0: And I, so then I started thinking kind of um, so outside the U.S. because I have some kind of pushing the book kind of globally. Mm-hmm. So then we could think about something like uh, managed decline in the U.K. Um, and they, they didn't have quite the same fear of Soviet nuclear strikes. They did, but not quite the same. Um, but that was kind of also just like it was a, they gave it a name, for goodness sake. Um, <laughs> and no, oh, this is just managed decline. Um, so not knowing much about the UK uh, outside of uh, my friends who live there, Um, is is managed decline different than the kind of um, let's let the market sort it out, even though the government directed the market uh, in the U.S. situation?
1: I mean, I have to say I also know at this point less about the UK um, than I do about the U.S., because I'll tell you what, when I was doing English as an undergraduate in the UK, we were not being taught about managed to climb. It was okay. Beowulf to Virginia Wolf. Uh, All right, well, then let's move then into And the... then I moved to the US and I was like, well, I live here now. I guess I should just learn about this place.
0: Um, um, well, any so, yeah, chance to pick I... on Thatcher. Sure. Um, so then I move into the 21st century. And uh, there are still nuclear weapons. Um what does, uh, what does it change that now we're kind of seeing the reverse uh, happening where white people are moving into the city and now the suburbs are actually the place where large numbers of not white people live. Uh, the suburb yeah. where I grew up is now 90% um, basically Mexican and Central American immigrants. Wow. Um, and, you know, people in Chicago moving to the north side. Um, mm-hmm. So. Like, what happens in the sequel to your book?
1: I mean, this is something I'm very curious about, and I would be very interested to think about, I guess, like, the continuities of landscapes of terror between the Cold War and the post-Cold War eras in the U.S. Um, Because in this book, I'm analyzing these kind of macro-level cultural imaginaries that are very much seeing, like, the Black City as the atomic target and then the white suburbs as the the surviving new frontier And this maps onto the Cold War imaginary of danger as a large scale atomic attack where the unit of destruction is the whole city. Um, So there it makes sense to think in those very binary, like Black City, white suburb ways. Um, And obviously this has changed a lot since the end of the Cold War um, with the transition to imagining like the dirty bomb and the rogue state with a small nuclear missile as the nuclear threat. Um, which also then entails a change in the unit of imagined destruction to something smaller, um, something more like a neighborhood. Um, And this was visible even in the nineties, but obviously like really took off after nine 11, which fulfilled a lot of those expectations, even as it was a different kind of attack. But what I would be very curious to see is a map of where terror attacks have taken place across the 20th and 21st centuries. If we included lynchings, um, right-wing terrorists like the unabomber and school shootings Um, because the locations for those things are very often like suburbs and small towns and more rural spaces and i wonder if the sense of fear of white suburbanites is a kind of disavowed acknowledgement of the forms of violence that are playing out all around them um, even in that kind of mid-century oh we're safe in the suburbs moment um, but that we're not supposed to see as part of a kind of larger recognizable ongoing system of terror Um, so maybe one of the things that the reverse of white flight does is move people from the spaces that used to be openly acknowledged as safer under the old kind of libidinal economy of threat in the cold war nuclear era to the spaces that no one admits are safer, but might be felt to be so in the new libidinal economy of threat, which is a white man with a gun in the suburbs. Uh, So I am probably not going to write this book, but I really hope that someone has or does.
0: Well, you you already give them kind of some terminology. That's right in the introduction. (laughs) You talk about hot spotter aesthetics and hot spotter. Mm -hmm. You're you're describing is basically hot spotter geography. Um, And, you know, like one thing that would be um, one of the Forms of violence you would see in the suburbs throughout the Cold War would just be domestic violence uh, happening mm-hmm. throughout the suburbs, uh, and levels of incidents there I would guess would be equal across whatever yeah. um, uh, you know, rural, suburban, or urban, uh, and that kind of hotspotter aesthetics of you know after the Super Bowl or whatever would also kind of come mm-hmm. into play. Because uh, when you when you brought up hotspotter aesthetics which here's my um, reader number two critique of the, uh, the book is I wanted more of that. <laughs> um, Cause there's, there's like the centers, there's Washington, New York, mm. LA. Um, and I remember growing up you know, I grew up during the cold war and everybody's like grandparents lived in a town that was in the top 10 Soviet strike list. You know, oh, we have the, we have this ball bearing plant, you know, Oh, we manufactured <laughs> this. And so it gave everybody like a perverse sense of pride. Um, to wherever they lived uh, which I think is another now you know of places because they've had a shooting there um, yeah and then kind of hot spotter uh aesthetic going on so maybe just do the hot spotter for the, the next book all right um <laughs> now um, since you finished the book have have you seen anything that you you wish you would have brought in yeah
1: oh so much I definitely like many, most all book writers would have just revised it forever if I could. Um, And yeah, like the book I'm working on now picks up basically exactly where the first book (laughs) leaves off, um, which is trying to think about um, firstly, the American nuclear complex as something that's global um, and goes far beyond America's borders. but also trying to kind of research what the similarities and differences are in how the nuclear complex is kind of operated in different places. And especially um, how nuclearization and decolonization have related to each other is I would say like the two big kind of world building projects of the post world war II era. Um, like nuclear colonialism is something that I feel like i really just kind of opened the door on towards the end of the book. And I was left with this giant question of like, okay, what kind of colonialism is nuclear colonialism when it comes to very literal things like land use and legal principles and like how exactly do these nuclear materialities colonize land or colonize space or colonize indigenous life? Um, so that's what I'm really in the weeds on at the moment is trying to figure out something that I feel like I was left with a giant question with at the end of the book.
0: So that that kind of, I guess that would lead to uh, the, the Leslie Marmon Silco chapter where there's kind of where waste goes, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's kind of, well, it's usually, it's one of those you read it and you're like, yes, I am not surprised in the least that, <laughs> that the answer is you, you put the waste where the kind of the most marginalized people and we can further marginalize them by by mm-hmm. putting that there. Um, now, to kind of give people a reason not to be depressed when they pick up your book, what else comes out of that? Um, you kind of, you hinted at the kind of, within that there's a moment he can, there's still like, we can see 500 years of history just by you know, mm-hmm. telescoping inside of a, a loop narrative. So there's there's the kind of, colonial, settler colonial violence that is of insane duration. Um, What else comes with that?
1: I mean, one thing that I think is really interesting and that Silco does and kind of helps you think about, but that also happens in other indigenous spaces is, um, the indigenous epistemologies and cosmologies really come forward as a way of thinking about nuclear materials that is much more appropriate to nuclear materials than Western scientism. Um, So what Silco does that's really interesting is kind of align uranium and Pueblo people as the beings that are able to conceptualize time over tens of thousands of years. Um, So it's this amazing kind of provincialization of Western science and all of its pretensions to perfect control over nuclear materials. Um, And this kind of foregrounding revolutionary centering of indigenous timescales, ways of being in the world um, and sovereignty in relation to these things that while they are colonial, can also perhaps be kind of reincorporated within an indigenous reality. Um, I think the way that she flips that around is a really kind of masterful moment of, I guess, decolonization. All
0: right. Um, now I want, I want to talk about um, the the Dahlgren stuff um, because I just loved it. But um, what, I, what I found when, there's a, a real kind of moment of humility uh, that you, you bring when you, you write that I have frame my discussion of Delaney as a speculation because that is ultimately the only mode of analysis one can bring to bear on Dahlgren. So kind of here, I guess I would say, I'll put myself in the position of a, of a student in in front of you. What is it about the novel that mm. that creates that, where all we, all we have is really speculation?
1: Yeah, I mean, I just love this book so much. Um, and I think Dahlgren is a masterpiece because it is itself both relentlessly materialist and wildly speculative. Um, So it's a novel about a city Bologna, and its infrastructures and how those infrastructures materialize like all of America's ideas about race and class and coloniality and sexuality and gender, everything. Um, But it's also a novel without an ending, right? Like the last line wraps back around to the first line with a little bit of overlap. Um, So the novel is literally circular in form. So, these meanings are all built into the landscape, but following Auerbach, there isn't an ending to secure them. So they all become speculative. And so the infrastructure itself becomes unmoored in time and space. So the streets start moving around and the characters experience time moving at different rates. Um, And there was a lot of debate when Dahlgren first came out about whether it counted as science fiction or not. And it's true that there aren't like aliens or this huge technological novum, Um, but it's also become solidified as a work of speculative fiction over time. And I think that's because it's speculative at this really fundamental level at which all meaning has become unguaranteed, that it simultaneously evokes how racial and colonial and gendered meanings are kind of coded into the American landscape. And gives you this wild hallucinatory experience of a world in which those meanings and those landscapes have all become unmoored. It's incredible.
0: Well, from the sublime to the ridiculous. Um, last week I talked to somebody who wrote about Ayn Rand, and now I'm talking to you, and you wrote about Ayn Rand. Oh, no. and we we started. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, this con- has become your life. Uh, we started this conversation uh, where you said it was it was a sunk cost fallacy. So, and I I wonder about this, what's it like to write about Ayn Rand?
1: So I also began this chapter right in the middle of the reparative reading, paranoid reading (laughs) debates. Um, Heather Love, who's very invested in those questions was one of my committee members and like a great mentor. Uh, So I was really determined not to do just the paranoid reading. Right, like explaining exactly why everything that she says is terrible. My commitment in writing about it was to be like, all right, I'm going to read it on its own terms for as long as possible. Um, so in my many readings of the novel and my <laughs> many readings of everything else that she wrote, um, I really tried at least to, for as long as possible, be like, what, what are the investments right like if you're a reader who likes this why do you like it why is it meaningful to you what does it offer Um, if you're the person writing it what are the stakes for you why are you so invested in these ways of differentiating between people and these ways of judging outcomes Um, like what makes this make sense on its own terms before then being like and here's how why all of that is terrible and generally kind of harmful to the public good Um, which I again made it more challenging as a process Um, it's not that fun to put yourself in the shoes of someone who's really like well as far as I can see there will be no harm in just genociding North America so that my small town of 800 highly rational white people can just start again Um, But I do think it took me somewhere kind of interesting and allowed me to see and understand what the kind of like what the nuclear age in particular was bringing to this sense of whiteness and how it had challenged whiteness's kind of investments in itself and forced it to produce new investments, which are still harming us now.
0: Did did you have the same experience reading the entire uh, Left Behind
1: series? You know, kind of, weirdly, I think Atlas Shrugged is challenging because it's like very racist, very genocidal, very bad. But it also has like some pretty good moments of political analysis. Like she's not always wrong about certainly what the nuclear state is doing. She's kind of spot on about it, even if her takeaways for how we should respond to that are different to what I might recommend. And Left Behind is sad it's really sad you uh, know like it's also like hateful and violent and and bad generally um, but it starts with basically every character in it like losing people that they love even though those people have been raptured and gone to heaven um, and there's just this this thread that runs through it that's kind of surprisingly moving of People just trying to desperately like they know that they shouldn't be sad about things because it's all going to work out in the end and they're about to be reunited post rapture, um, but there's just this sense of like, yeah, but we live now, and all of this is really painful. <laughs> that living in time is actually hard, even as you're desperately invested in trying to imagine the end of time and how it's going to wipe you know wipe all the tears away. So it was interesting. <laughs> Long,
0: yeah. and one more question: um, Is this uh, the kind of larger argument about the nuclear infrastructure? Would you imagine it to be portable? I mean, most of the nuked-up countries do have uh, a history of settler colonialism. Um, would you imagine that, kind of broadly speaking, you could pick up your main ideas and and they would be more or less right in a uh, French context, um, for example, or do you have any ideas on that?
1: This is something I'm super interested in um, and working on right now um, because Ashes Nandy has this line where he says that the, the global nuclear complex is like globally identical. It's the same wherever it rocks up. Um, like McDonald's is his <laughs> reference. It's the same in Paris or Pocran. Um But I'm like very curious as to how true that is, especially... I mean, France, I think, has maybe even a more kind of fervent murderous colonialism to its nuclear activities than the US, especially in the Pacific, where it continued nuclear testing long after everyone else had stopped and still to this day, like, insists that it still has the right to do so and could do it at any minute. Like, it does not care. Um, But I'm really interested in places where the post-colonial state has become really invested in nuclear power. So this happened in India, um, a bit later in Pakistan, it happened in Ghana, um, that these kind of celebratory post-colonial state-building moments are times when people like Nehru were like, yes, and our post-colonial state has to have nuclear power because that's how we're going to become like a fully developed modern civilization and take our place um, at the kind of table of nuclear nations. Um, And it is really interesting to see how, even in those kind of explicitly post-colonial contexts, a lot of these kind of colonial systems and structures and infrastructures just kind of sit themselves into place. Uh, And it just, it feels like they bring those kind of colonial practices with them and you just end up with a kind of internal colonization, even within places that are explicitly trying to build a post-colonial nation. Um, but I'm not sure that it's exactly the same as the fact that you can buy like Levi's in India. Um, I'm interested in figuring out what those differences are. Like, Are there cultural specifics in these kind of contact zone <laughs> spaces of you know, an Indian test site and kind of American-inspired nuclear detonations that are taking place there. I will report back in, like, five years.
0: Um, one last kind of question about the book before I have some fun stuff at the end. Um, so uh, this, I guess, gets to, like, a late Baldwin, which I think is an appropriate place to finish. Um, <laughs> that You write that uh, Baldwin's apocalypse thus insists on transfiguration, not in the utopian future, but in the resolutely non-utopian, repetitive, maybe even boring, or aesthetically disappointing present, um, and this is kind of kind of immediately kind of the cliche came to mind that we just want to replace hysterical misery with ordinary unhappiness, um, <laughs> and is like is, like, and, and this is where I can see this, this is the bad Baldwin because it's kind of like, is
1: is that all there is, um, like I don't think Baldwin found himself disappointing at all in his. <laughs> late moments like actually his tone is still very fiery um towards the end of his career i think he's he's reckoning with his own disappointment and his question there is much like mine like how do you keep going when you've actually kind of lost faith in change and what's really remarkable to me is that he does keep going he keeps writing even as everyone is like oh baldwin just saying the same old stuff, boring, repetitive, disappointing. He's really like, no, I may have, like, I'm no longer writing Jeremiah ads, right? Where if you do X, you can foreclose this kind of apocalyptic ending. By that point in his career, he's like, the ending is coming, but that doesn't mean that you can stop working for improvement or revolution or transfiguration. And that's what I'm really trying to get at with transfiguration. That It's about trying to seize some kind of moment to transform the present rather than placing all of your eggs in the basket of the future, okay. essentially, that one of the things that losing faith in the future gives you is a kind of, is permission to do something else now. Okay. So-
0: Kind of just on a more friendly level. I think that's a good place to end. Um, Are there a couple of books or even articles that you've read lately that you would recommend to people, maybe not even related to this project or what you're working on, but just stuff that you read that was quite good? Anybody you want to put over?
1: (laughs) Oh, my God. I mean, anyone who's interested in this kind of thing, this goes back to the (laughs) hotspotter aesthetics. If you want to know more about hotspots, um, and did not get that from my book, which is entirely probable. Um, everyone should read Shiloh Krupa's work in hotspotters report, um, which is her book from maybe 2015. Um, that's just incredible. Um, she's really pushing the boundaries, not only of how we think about things, but also of the form of the academic monograph. Um, and Shannon Cram's work. I will also always, Bush. She's a cultural geographer who works in um, the Hanford Nuclear Reservation and just has like fascinating and really, really brilliant insights into just how people live under these kind of nuclear conditions. Sweet.
0: Well, thank you. Well, to remind everyone, the book title is Infrastructures of Apocalypse American Literature in the Nuclear Complex. It's Jessica Hurley's book. It's on Minnesota Press. Lovely cover with a picture of a piece of uranium. Uh, thank you so much for talking to me and look forward to seeing you sometime soon.
1: Thanks so much, Christian.